As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and one of the stars of the run of races before the August break was Oscar Piastri, whose quietly good start to the season became much more high-profile thanks to McLaren's turnaround. But how impressive has he been, and how has he really stacked up against Lando Norris? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us with all the answers are Val Haringi and Scott mitchell Mound. Well, Val, we'll say hello to you first back on the F1 pod. You've just gone through the drama of uh, of, of moving house. How's that been? A little bit. So you, you've taken it to an extreme as well. Yeah, I didn't love it. Not the not the most enjoyable of of circumstances. So there's a good chance the last few races sort of all blur together into a a mess of nonsense for me. But I think I'm mostly here, not so much for that, but to speak about my prior impressions of Piastri and do a giant mea culpa on what I expected out of him in F1 and what we're actually getting. Well, that's what the uh, the topic is all about. Um, we should say to people, you've moved, I don't know, you've moved about, what, 3,000 kilometres? So not not a small move. Nah, not a, not a small move at all. And somehow one with a lot of lead up and yet not one I was prepared for at all. Excellent. Well, the important thing is you're here now to talk about Oscar Piastri and Scott Mitchell Malm, also a relatively recent mover, but set up in your uh, in your office. So you're you're over the uh, the worst of it. Uh, yeah, that's correct. I also um, I got the you know relocation of country out of the way a few years ago, and then stuck with the one that I moved to. So I haven't had to put myself through that process multiple times. But uh, moving from a an apartment to a house was a uh, bad enough i never now that i'm in a house and populating a house with loads more stuff because of all of the rooms extra rooms and 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 whatnot i can safely say i never want to go through this process again um whether that's in the summer break winter break whatever it is i'm i'm hoping that this is now my the my my permanent digs and where i will be doing all of my podcast recordings when i'm at home from now on (laughs) 
I think that's a very, very good philosophy. And it takes a while to get sorted out. I mean, I, I didn't move that long ago, and I've not sorted out my flat at all. But about five years ago, admittedly. But uh, <laughs> I'm away a lot, and there's there's lots of there's lots of archive material in piles around uh, uh, around me. So anyway, let's get on with talking about the topic at hand. Val, obviously, you did follow Oscar Piastri's progress in the junior ranks very closely. Has his 12 Grand Prix career measured up to expectations so far? Oh, it's honestly it's blown them out of the water. It's been much, much better than I expected. He's been much, much closer to Lando Norris than I expected from very early on, which is not to say that he's surpassing Norris or matching Norris necessarily, but just he has avoided a scenario that I felt was entirely plausible, which is of Norris reliably putting three to four tenths over him in any given qualifying session because Lando Norris is just that good. Uh, and I feared that for Piastri, given all the loudness surrounding the exact circumstances of how he arrived onto the Formula One grid, that could be create a bit of, I wouldn't say buyer's remorse, because I think McLaren would have been prepared for that and looking at it longer term, but certainly a public buyer's remorse. Also considering that I think some people bizarrely thought that he didn't act properly in that whole scenario. So some people will have been quite keen to see him under deliver and be worse than the the driver he succeeded, which is emphatically has not been the case. I've I've been massively amused by the sort of U turn that a few people have had to do on Piastri and 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 Val is Val probably sits at quite a good cross section of um, the, the the people in that phase because I don't think you were ever quite so extreme as well. Clearly, this guy's like massively overrated and an absolute fraud, um, but. To also, I, as, as you say, not not like you were standing there. You were you weren't at the vanguard of Piastri is going to change F one and he's going to yeah. be absolutely outstanding. But the I feel like there were mo- a lot more people in the first camp than the second one. Like I was genuinely surprised at through his F two title winning season. It really did surprise me that you had a you had a bit of a swell of support from people who were like, I can't believe this guy's not getting into Formula One. It's kind of ridiculous but didn't really feel like for me it was very much an out and out injustice because the like when you compared it to other people who had had the success he'd had it's a no-brainer that that guy should get picked up and put in formula one so for me it was colossally stupid that he wasn't but then over that sort of period and then even in the sort of year on the sidelines like it's just not someone that people were excited about that really got talked about and then once he did get hired maybe it was because of the circumstances maybe it was because Daniel Ricciardo was so beloved by so many people. Like even the Australian fans were turning on Piastri before he'd even started a Grand Prix because of what he had quote-unquote done to to Ricciardo. But it was almost like all these peripheral factors and just a, probably like a degree of ignorance for a lot of people. And I, and I say that as that doesn't necessarily apply to, to, to you, Val, given you're someone who does take a keen interest in junior single-seaters. But... It was almost like the details of what made him good were just totally overlooked. And that doesn't surprise me in a huge way because that does happen with junior drivers, especially the ones who aren't, you know, your your Leclerc, Verstappen, even Russell to George Russell to a degree, like megastars. There's always going to be an element of doubt. But it was just like honestly, at sometimes it just felt like just another F two driver was stepping up into to F1, not someone who had won three consecutive titles and had looked mega every single time he'd stepped up into something really difficult. You know, those clear, clear steps into F3 and F2 as a championship 
were ones that he rolled with supremely well, but it just never really got a huge amount of attention. Yeah, I mean, it was it was for me it was not any sort of like obviously the the Ricardo replacement situation doesn't come into it for me at all as a as a factor in any sort of viewing Piastri in any sort of way. And I did think that he obviously warranted a place on the grid immediately after he won Formula Two in his first attempt. That's just for me, that's just how things should work. Not that it should be rubber stamped in the regulations, but that if a driver wins Formula Two on their first attempt, there is something there to explore. It is worth a Formula One team's time to to find out. And I think there was also maybe a bit of confidence, maybe misplaced because it never works out that simply, but a bit of confidence that sooner or later he would he would get a shot, even if one year on the sidelines is still not ideal. But it's you know. It's not as if he was just getting turned away and going to hypercars or anything like that. Um, for me, it was it was a matter of disposing of priors, I guess, because I had seen Piastri. Maybe I hadn't followed his rise as closely as some of the drivers before, just because of how my sort of racing interests and racing employment shifted. But when he began, and I think, you know, first taking notes of him in British Formula 4. Like you could see that's a good driver. You could clearly see there's there's something interesting there, but you couldn't you couldn't really make a great case for him being this, you know, this dynamo, this Verstappen Leclerc of the next generation. And Verstappen everybody knew right away. Everybody knew right away and then everybody knew even more like halfway through his first season and then he was in Formula 1. That that messes with your brain a little bit with what you expect from junior drivers. And that sort of maybe brings you into this Red Bullish line of thinking of if a driver's the man, the woman, I guess, you know it immediately. You know it right away. You, they show it in, in their adaptation. They swim immediately. And they, don't, they don't just swim. They break world records. Piastri was good in formula four he was good in formula renault 2.0 but you know when he won that formula renault 2.0 title the first of the success of three that scott mentions it was a sophomore campaign he was run a bit close to it by a few other drivers if i remember correctly i mean i'm i think that season i was more interested in victor martins who martins who ended up a fellow alpine junior soon enough Formula three, he won, but he was never on the front row that whole season in that in that campaign. He was driving for Prima. And again, it was it was this ridiculously close thing where I think three drivers finished within four points. Very easily could have been a different champion that season. I think rookie Theo Porcher, not with Prima, but with ART, was pretty much everybody's pick as the standout that season. In Formula Two. Piastri was fantastic. So good. It was exceptional. He roundly defeated a very good, more experienced teammate at Prema in Robert Schwartzman. And this is probably, this is where you should dispose of your priors because he was also great in qualifying. And Formula 2 qualifying is fairly predictive of future quality. But you can still forgive people for sort of going, but it's Prema. Prema sometimes, there are weird Prema seasons where sometimes Prema just clicks with somebody and it's incredible. But again, that usually shows up in Formula One. And I don't know why I why I couldn't quite adjust my expectation of 
Piastri, like, yeah, he'll be a good solid Formula One driver, but I don't see this Verstappen or Leclerc or Russell level of potential. I, I do see it now. I genuinely do see it now. That doesn't mean he'll definitely reach it, but I I am a believer, if you like, at this point, because it would be ridiculous not to be. I, th- I think one of the things that's, that stood out for me, and we'll get into sort of it in an F1 context shortly, but what always impressed me from the first time I spoke to him properly during his F3 winning season and spoke to a few people that sort of had seen him quite closely that year was it it was more sort of how he was achieving things and the other stuff around his makeup that impressed me i the 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 headline numbers of the titles that he was scoring were obviously you know that they, they they were very handy and they were very obvious sort of literal trophies to 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 use as evidence of how good he was and it's a it's a nice and easy go to 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 make the case for why he deserved to be in formula 1 but even in that F3 season, I was very impressed with how he was able to pick out specific areas of his game that he'd been disappointed by, you know, elements of, you know, his qualifying pace being weak, for example, in F3 and maybe sort of how he ad- adapted to an F3 and by extension F2 sort of format and getting the most out of the tyres and, and, and that sort of thing. The way that he embedded himself within the Renault team a couple of times and then his focus there was mainly the language that the drivers were using and you know how it did or didn't match up to how he was talking to the team and sort of realised actually one of his takeaways was um, I don't need to overcomplicate this because this is actually kind of how I talk uh, as it is and you then go into F2 and he cashes in on a bunch of that that learning. And as you say, Val, like his qualifying form was exceptional. Um, his race craft in that Euro Cup winning season and in F3 and in F2 were absolutely excellent. And you just, the closer that you looked, the more you saw actual ingredients there coming together. So it, it was, yes, the, the sum of all the parts was very impressive with the titles. But when you then broke those parts down and looked at them individually, you were like, there's a, there is, there's a proper driver here. But you just don't know how that will translate into to, to Formula One. That's the, th- that's the only thing that you, you can't guarantee. But th- there was enough that I saw there. So I, I, I was quite happy nailing my colours to the mast in, in 2021 and then obviously through 22 as well. I, I think this is a proper driver and I, I would not be surprised to see teams. Teams should be falling over their feet trying to get him. And that's why McLaren ultimately did. Yeah, it's, honestly, it's a cool thing to be wrong about. Like, there's absolutely no <laughs> no hard feelings or regret for not, like, the way I was calling it at the time was the way I saw it. And I honestly, doing it again, I'd still probably see it the same way just because um, it wasn't just me, right? It was Red Bull too. Red Bull could have signed him early in his career, never did, then publicly admitted that it regretted it never did. Obviously, that came before the three consecutive titles. So Red Bull has more of an excuse than I do. But there is, I, I, I see why it is. You, sometimes with junior drivers, what you look for is the absolute peak and the peak not even being like a full season, the peak being like one weekend, one qualifying session, one lap that makes you go. And with Oscar, I think that only really came in Formula 2 where you started to go, ooh, every every other weekend in, in qualifying, his name would just be at the top over and over and over again. Whereas sort of gradual improvement over junior career Maybe it's how what we should want, but it's not sexy, is it? It's it's hard to see that as being indicative of anything but just a pretty good Grand Prix driver 
potentially. But if you want to put it in almost oversimplified terms, there are really two key elements for any promising driver. It's that underlying pace, that searing turn of speed, like say a Leclerc showed in his junior career and, and other drivers. But you also need that ability to put everything together because that's what really, really is telling in Formula One, that intelligent approach, the the capacity to improve. And we did see that capacity to improve, as you both talked about, in Piastri's junior career as well. And one of the things I really like about Piastri is in Formula One as well, he's very quick to point at things where he thinks he could have done a little bit better. And the, the corollary of this is there are drivers who will always blame an external thing very quickly. And they'll keep doing that. They'll keep letting themselves off the hook. They'll never improve. But if you look at Piastri, Saudi Arabia, where he qualified really well, had that collision with Gasly. He was in a legitimate place. He could very easily say, well, I got squeezed into the wall. What could I do? But quite quickly after the race, he was, well, I need to sort of look at that and think about that. And could I have avoided getting in that situation? Monaco, he had a good weekend. But at the end of it, he was still saying, well, I was a little bit slow getting up to speed. So I still need to have a bit of a look at at practice. Canada, he complained about one of his stints being a bit conservative. Even Spa, where he could have just blamed science out of hand. He sort of said, well, yeah, it wasn't my fault, but Equally, I've got to think about whether there were things I could have done to avoid it. And that's, I think, one of the keys to Piastri, that ability to constantly improve and challenge himself. I think Ricardo had it as well, but I've really liked that about Piastri. He's not someone who will purely accentuate the positive. And that's probably underlining why he improved so much in the junior categories as well, because he's he's able to kind of put the, the good things he's done to one side and say, right, that's fine, but let's raise the level elsewhere let's get the risk re-reward right let's find ways i could have done even better yeah i was you know remember at the start of the season when mclaren was already raving about his bahrain debut that was you know good but not like not something that made you go oh future world champion material obviously not that that's a call you should make off of one at formula one grand prix but you know i digress but they were they were clearly so happy and at that point it was very easy to read it as well you you're going to have to be publicly happy and publicly raving about the driver because of how committed you are and how much you had to do to make this happen financially and reputationally and you know all all of the things surrounding it but now it's it's extremely easy to see why McLaren really likes him isn't it i mean it's it's very very clear and obvious he seems very humble he seems very smart about how he goes about things and he's got great adaptability and really good pace and an approach that does make you believe that he will work out whatever there is to work out, whatever flaws there are to iron out, that he will set his mind to it and he'll get it done. Just the big the big thing for me is I I did not think he'd be bad. And that's not what I'm saying. I thought he'd really suffer against Norris because Norris is frightening as a prospect. I think what, what was impressive from the beginning was that um, he immediately validated a lot of things that had been seen behind the scenes um, and indicated that he would make good on on all those areas where Ricardo struggled for example and he would provide what McLaren needed from that driver now arguably what you might say is that even a good rookie takes a while to make that case emphatically I think of if you look at the contrast between for example um, Charles Leclerc's first couple of races in Formula One versus Verstappen's, you know, Verstappen showed immediately that even though he was absurdly inexperienced and young, he could 
string it together and get a points finish. Showed that straight out of the blow. Took Charles all of four or five weekends to do it. But um, that's what I mean. Like, if Piastri had taken a few weekends to bed in, it wouldn't have been problematic at all. But having that test in Bahrain definitely helped. But by qualifying, you know, I, I could see it when I looked in the you know, the basic data that we have and watching his onboards. And then McLaren subsequently confirmed it with some information that I was able to get over the following weekends. But straight out of the blocks in Bahrain, there was nothing problematic in the way Piastri was driving, certainly like not nothing like Ricardo. And the the pretty minimal time loss to Norris over a full lap in qualifying in Bahrain was, you know, it was microseconds in ev- in a few corners and he was quicker in some others but there wasn't a specific profile of corner that he was struggling with there wasn't any evidence of choking when it came into qualifying or 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 anything like that now certainly it took and he's still a bit frustrated now I think that every now and again there are some slip-ups in you know Q3 or on that final lap in qualifying but generally speaking he has got on top of that and done done a good job so I think the main thing for McLaren was they'd already seen some signs last year and with the research that they'd done into him, they were like, actually think that there is a really well-rounded driver here that's incredibly adaptable and can can do the business. And if anything, he probably just impressed them immensely by getting onto it, you know, absolutely straight out of the blocks. And there was one thing that, um, and we'll, we'll come into this in a little bit more detail shortly, but one thing I've been told by someone who works extremely closely with Piastri is that if you told them at the very start of the season oh, this guy's got five years racing experience in F1, you just don't know it, then they'd have believed them because he was so far along in his understanding and his execution that it was it was a very aggressive example of the he doesn't even look like a rookie argument. Yeah, and ultimately, I think it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily show that well in the results because there were sessions where he'd like make one mistake. Spain was one. He'd have been right up there with Norris had he not made that mistake at, at turn 10. The rest of the lap was great. Still a little error, but in the tricky part of the track. So that underlying pace is there. Obviously, the results have been better for Norris overall. He's got basically twice the points that Piastri does. Piastri's only out-qualified him three times. That's in the two Belgium qualifying sessions and at Saudi Arabia. But the underlying pace it is close and if you it's difficult that the the qualifying pace comparison is quite messy with these two because there have been spec differences and that kind of thing but where a comparison's fair the average gap is relatively small it is in Norris's favour but not by much and that's been really really impressive by Piastri which is why he's built this nice solid foundation honestly I I expected to probably increase a little bit across a more normal run of qualifying sessions and races over the rest of the season, which is fine. I mean, that's my, maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe extra experience gained by Piastri will mean a, will mean an exponential rise relative to Norris. But I, I do think that it, it will still, it will take a lot of time to actually get on the same level of baseline performance as Norris because Norris is so good. He is so, so good. And again, that's, that just traces back to, to my concern to the start of the season. And even even if you have a driver who already, even if this is his baseline for the next two years or so, that he's just a couple of tenths off Norris, a couple of tenths off Norris is really good. Like you've got something, McLaren would have signed up for a couple of tenths of Norris, no questions asked for the past two years, absolutely. A couple of tenths of Norris means that whatever money was invested in this move has already you know, paid off, is already worth it. 
Yeah, and I think it's a little bit closer than that. In reality, Silverstone is a great example where basically Norris had the new spec front wing, Piastri didn't. That was worth about a tenth, and the gap was just over a tenth. And I think Piastri had a slight disadvantage on the the engine as well. So yeah, some really eye catching performances relative to Norris. Yeah, Pia- uh, McLaren reckon that Piastri is just under a tenth off Norris on average over the course of the year. If you you know take everything into consideration, they're not interested in the the head to heads or the um, um, you know average qualifying position or you know that that kind of thing because it, it's especially in the midfield and especially where McLaren were at the first part of the season, it, it can be so easily distorted. And obviously Piastri is a rookie versus someone who has established themselves as one of the best drivers in Formula One, um, even though some people bafflingly don't see Norris uh, in in that light necessarily. Um, the, it's that on their various metrics, what does that pace analysis come down to? And it's basically, it's le- less than a tenth, which is, uh, again, I... I fall a little bit into Val's category in this one. That's better than I expected him to be um, for the first half of the season. Yeah, very interesting foundation that he's got here. And yeah, it'd be fascinating to see how the battle between these two plays out over the coming years because they're going to be together for a good few seasons at the very least. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, Scott, let's get into a little bit more detail on what makes Piastri so good. You recently interviewed his race engineer, Tom Stallard, who picked out some interesting contrasts with Lando Norris in the way he approaches things on track. Yeah, so uh, one thing that um, stands out with with Piastri, and this will go for anyone who's spoken to him or even heard him speak in interviews, is how calm he is, how economical he is with his with his words. And He's probably the most quiet driver over the radio it's not he doesn't say anything but he's so economical with his words isn't he yes he is so so calm calm but intense is the way that Stallard describes him and we see sometimes with here sometimes with Norris that he can get a bit worked up and a bit mardy sometimes on the team radio but you never really hear that with Piastri he's just he's extremely extremely laid back but it should that that shouldn't be taken to mean you know not invested or doesn't care it reminded me a little bit of some stories that you hear from Max Verstappen when he's younger and Jos just doesn't doesn't understand why Verstappen's not furious about every single thing and sometimes with with Max it's just because he he is a bit more reserved but I think Piastri goes one step further because there's no there's not been any evidence so far that he can even have those moments like Verstappen has over the radio or out of the car or anything like that he's just his conduct is, I'm not going to say impeccable because you, you can't say that unless you work with him, but that measured approach clearly pays off in terms of it fits really nicely with that methodical way of working and 
being able to, as McLaren often phrase it, cash in on the opportunities to to improve pretty quickly. I, there, there, there's elements of his driving style that um, are interesting um, as well. I kind of had to um, meander a little bit through an answer uh, for a question we got asked on this podcast fairly recently about what his driving style was, but um, it was only because he he's been so adaptable through his junior career. He's kind of worked with what the car does rather than really shown a pronounced one himself. I mean, Ed, for, for, for you, given how often you watch onboards and stuff like this with what you've seen in qualifying, like what would you characterise as Piastri's strengths or preferences as a driver? Yeah, he's not someone who seems overwhelmingly limited by any particular characteristic. You do see sometimes some drivers who are very good in a set window. And uh, I think Stallard, if memory serves, said something like this to you, that sometimes driving style is what your tolerance is or isn't for certain things. And it's what you're limited by. And that kind of contributes to the the style, which I imagine you'll explain in a minute, that Piastri's got, which I think is kind of, if you can get it right, fundamentally, potentially the quickest style. Uh, so, yeah, I think he's he's always somebody who looks pretty in control, He's not somebody who gets to the corner entry, puts the car in, and then if there's a big bit of instability or something, it ruins the whole corner for him. He can he can make adjustments if it's not doing quite what he wants, which is quite important with the McLaren as well, because it does have a, still a few little unpredictable peculiarities. So yeah, he's he's really a bit of a a classic uh, V corner style driver, isn't he? Uh, I think um, I, I I think that's what he's that's how he's driving. He's coping with driving the McLaren. Um, but I think he's a bit closer to Norris's in an ideal world, if you could give them their ideal F1 car. He's a bit closer to Norris in that, and this is probably quite a cliched F1 driver thing, but, and this is something Stallard said, is that actually fundamentally every F1 driver broadly wants the same thing, which is to get to a corner, have a strong front end, put um, attack the corner, be able to pick up the throttle as early as possible and carry as much speed through the corner and then good traction on exit. That's broadly the sort of car that they want, but obviously they'll all have different, um, you know, refined elements of technique in which that they manipulate that car through the corner. And Piastri, when I... And we should actually note that how drivers will define that can differ a little bit, shall we say, in that that's why I talk about different tolerances. One driver's understeer might be another's neutral balance and, and vice versa. So you always have to bear in mind these are all driver perspectives when they refer to it. They're not necessarily absolutes that are all the same for everyone no exactly so so one thing is uh, i had a really interesting contrast with norris and, and piastri in quick succession recently it was in hungary when they were talking about you know getting them to talk about driving style and approach and norris said that what he wants is you, you know you you mentioned the classic v there norris wants to you you the corner off more he wants to be able to Go go around the go through the corner closest to the apex with you know carrying that speed through the corner with the front end that allows him to to to, to do that while taking the corner almost in a longer form. But with the McLaren, you have to drive it in a little bit deeper, get the rotation done, and then drive out of the corner. Now Piastri is very very reticent to talk specifically about his driving style, um, but he says he's closer to the Norris way of wanting to drive than the way he's driving the McLaren. At the moment, but it's it's interesting reconciling that with what Stallard was saying because Piastri's so far been really impressive in high speed corners. That's something that he feels he's always traditionally been strong at, but McLaren has noticed it as well. So the work tends to be done on lower speed stuff, which isn't a surprise because that will be where a lot of 
the evils of the McLaren man like uh, ex- are exposed uh, a little bit more. The trade off of um, uh, steering input to 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 the brake. Uh, especially with this generation of car and McLaren feels that this is you know very much a built-in difficulty that they have with their car as well it, exaggerated a little bit by the type of tire that we have at the moment in in Formula 1 that means just just managing that steering input to brake input to get that rotation the way you need it is extremely delicate and Piastri has been very good at that but it, that slow speed stuff is where a bit more work has has been needed but what's really interesting to just bring back to your point about you know what the driver's tolerances are what McLaren has seen is that Piastri doesn't lack and I sort of mentioned this earlier he doesn't lack anything to Norris in specific corner types and there's not a, any particular balances so far that have caught him out or left him you know a bit lost or or or, or anything like that so Stallard was saying you can't really define his style based on his weaknesses which is where you would normally work from as you were hinting at earlier so it's absolutely fascinating there's a makeup of a driver here who um, has a lot of the you know the really really key skills Um, it's interesting because when you go from junior single seaters to F1 that that steering and braking trade-off and how you handle it when it's on that knife edge is so much more pronounced in F1 because everything's happening so much faster and the loads that you're working with are much greater and the complexities of the downforce and the mechanical grip are much greater. But when you're in a genius single-seater, you're in those corners for longer. You've got a bit more time to manage the car moving around and, and if the car slides, you can you can correct it a little bit. If you need to force the rotation, you've got a bit more time to force the rotation. But it happens so much faster in F1, and Piastri has dealt with that transition extremely well. Yeah, and I think any driver who can be said to be adaptable and not have that limitation-based driving style is very, very encouraging. It's what someone like Alonso's got. Fernando Alonso, you could almost argue he doesn't have a driving style because he's capable of doing just about anything. Whatever he feels the car demands, he's capable of being very improvisational. Whereas if you compare what he's done at some seasons in the past, uh, his slightly smoother steering inputs on the Aston Martin. It shows how it can change. So I really like that about Piastri as well. And this is where that whole intelligence and adaptability comes into it. There are drivers. To, to pick one out in Formula 1, someone like Pierre Gasly, I think he's very, very quick when, he, when the car's giving him what he wants. But if it doesn't, he just becomes a little bit more middle of the road. So that's what defines the great drivers for me, their capacity to be at that level across a broad range very consistently. I'm not I'm not going to say Piastri is proven he's going to be a future world champion as yet, but he's showing the traits that could well get into get him to that level. He's uh, he's almost at worst Grand Prix winner level driver and at best uh, potential world champion. So that's an interesting place to be just a, a dozen races into his career but Val have you sort of seen this this adaptability in in the junior formulas before do you think that was a a trait that's there and almost going back to what we were saying in the first part of this podcast it's almost an undervalued trait isn't it that drivers can evolve especially when you've got a one make formulae very very set kind of setups and way that teams like drivers to drive that's quite an important quality, isn't it? Being able to go into whatever team they say, right, we want you to do this, you adapt, and off you go, because there usually will be a, an established best way to do it. Certainly, when they're beyond the first year with uh, with cars, because given the multi year car cycles. 
Well, it's ultimately, you know, back-to-back titles on the F1 support ticket tell you a lot about adaptability because the the weekend format is always you get one practice session that's either 30 or 45 minutes, you get one qualifying session, then you go racing. And sometimes you do that without having any prior proper knowledge of the Pirelli tires. Sometimes you do that in messy weather conditions, which means like the practice is wet and the qualifying is dry. Good luck. Sometimes your team will have a simulator, but I assume sometimes it will not. And Prima will have had it. So that, that'll be the, where the, the adaptability is. And that's, you know, uh, Piastri's opposition wasn't necessarily the most experienced. I wouldn't say he went up against like multi-season heavyweights who you would have expected to, you know, blitz F3 or F2 in their third season, let's say. Um, again, his main rival in Formula 2 was Robert Schwartzman, who was in his second season in Formula 2, which is, you know, it's not quite the season where you would say a top driver almost guarantees themselves the title. Like, Schwartzman was always going to be in contention, but there probably would have been a better F2 version of Robert Schwartzman if he got another season, which he did not. Uh, but again, that's where some of the reservations were always. It was also the the quality of opposition, but still you have to, you know, you have to beat what's in front of you. And in Formula 2 in particular, and again, this is, yeah, it's a big step from F3 to F2. And sometimes, you know, we get very excited about rookies in F2 that don't, do even a little bit of what Piastri did. I think Yuki Tsunoda had an excellent single rookie Formula 2 season. I think it really showed his adaptability, but he was third. He was third and he was not quite in the title race. And Piastri absolutely, you know, dog walked the opposition in his in his season. So clearly that shows a particular affinity for what Formula 2 demanded of him. And what Formula 2 demands is, after all, a pretty decent predictor of what F1 might demand of you with with some obvious caveats yeah and that's the great thing he's done he's taken those qualities and transitioned into f1 well obviously in f1 you have to almost refine everything to the nth degree showing a great capacity for doing that which is very encouraging we'll get back to the pod in a moment but first a word about our partner grammarly no matter what kind of work you do how you communicate is key All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, let's talk now a little bit more about McLaren in general. Obviously, Val, you had some question marks over Norris committing to McLaren for so long, given he signed up to the end of 2025 a while ago. But are you won over by the project, given it's making clear progress now and has a strong driver lineup with both Norris and Piastri? Like one mere culpa is enough for the for the episode. So I don't <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna be making a particular huge U-turn on my thinking 
over that long-term Norris contract and what it means for his long-term title chances and the end goal, the end all and be all of winning a Formula One title. I am, am I won over by the project? Yeah, I'm very impressed by the in-season development that they've had. It is, it has been genuinely incredible to see. I think Norris rightly pointed out that it feels unprecedented in modern Formula One that you just don't get with, with all the upgrades being so gradual the way they are for virtually anybody, unless, unless you see just, even when you see almost a complete car concept change, you do not see this kind of step that McLaren just developed, uh, that, that McLaren just de- de- developed and delivered. So that has been incredible. But I don't know that it tells me much about McLaren's ceiling. I don't know that it tells me much about McLaren's time frame in terms of being where Norris deserves to be next year, for instance, which is, I think Lando Norris should be fighting for race victories next year fairly regularly on a merit basis. And it's not an indictment of McLaren that I don't think McLaren will be fighting for race victories regularly next season. It's just you know how things are. And you could say the same about eight other Formula One teams. But like that part of it, I don't know, it's reductive. But that part of it doesn't matter so much to me in a Norris context. For Norris, there should be an urgency to win now. That's, I don't know, maybe that's silly because the one win now car is taken up by two drivers and maybe Red Bull wouldn't be particularly interested in pairing Verstappen and Norris, although Helmut Marko to, I don't remember, German or Austrian media, I think Austrian media suggested that you know they'd be up for it. I still think that's more interesting and really pushing and exploring that is more interesting than a long-term project like McLaren, even if Norris likes McLaren and can shape McLaren around him and can be the top dog at McLaren. So yeah, my my view on it hasn't changed. And again, this is not anti-McLaren. I think they've done an amazing job this season in turning around what looked so, so awful after the first few races. I'm, it's super impressive. I love what they do with their driver decisions basically across the board. I love that they went out and got Piastri. I love that the organization is doing what it does to secure Alex Palau in IndyCar. I think that's super impressive. And I think that shows a a brutal level of ambition that you really, really need. But for me, it just doesn't overwrite the, the maths of Landon or should be in a race winning car right now. And yeah, maybe he's accepted that he can't be. I can't accept that. I'm struggling to accept it. The um the the, the progress that they've made very rapidly in season, really at best, all that does is just restore a bit of confidence that Norris would have had in that long-term project because whether you agree with it or not, that that's his logic, isn't it? It's, he's buying into the idea that by 25 and 26, that, that team can be at the front. And the trajectory of the last 18 months would have completely absolutely eradicated that confidence and speaking to I remember speaking to him earlier this year in in, in Melbourne specifically about this um at a reasonable length and he was he was saying that the long-term stuff hadn't the bigger picture he hadn't had his confidence knocked but he understood why people thought he was growing frustrated and and things like this but that came obviously after Stella, Andrea Stella had enacted the technical changes that have led to this upgrade and this massive turnaround in fortune. So there's very, I, I think, I think what's important to Lando is a bit of, I think loyalty is important to him, but I think also there are certain people who he clearly um, puts a lot of emphasis on, 
what they say and he and, and he he trusts what what they tell him now on one grand scale that will be Zach Brown who obviously Norris has been close to for a very long time but Stella is the kind of person who I, I totally get why if, you, if he's in your corner and you trust him why you like you could hang on to his every word and if he's telling you look I know it's because he's not going to mince his words either he's going to be saying like, I know it's rubbish at the moment but I'm in charge now I see us doing things differently to how we did before on a very, very significant scale, not just as team boss, but I'm going to change the technical side. We're going to recruit these people, all of this. So buy back a little bit of faith. And then to see that materialise in tangible improvements in season, like they could not have expected that. And it's such a huge win for McLaren because Norris is crucial to that project of making them a top team again. If I mean Piastri, we talk about how good he is. He could well be the future of that project if Norris left. Like that that is definitely within his capabilities. But Norris is now, right now, an absolutely elite F1 driver. And it's it's must be to enormous relief at McLaren that they've proven to him that his faith is somewhat justified. The the question I have, which is um I think we probably whenever we've talked about this online be, be, between us, but I'm, I'm more than happy to put you on the spot in the podcast as well, Val, is what, while he should be in a race-winning car, obviously if circumstances were slightly different, he would already have won with McLaren in 2021. Um, it's not impossible that he scores several more podiums this year, which is the best result he would get anywhere if he unless he was in a Red Bull. So just playing devil's advocate, or Lando's advocate... <laughs> Where where should he have moved to, or could he have moved to? Because I, I don't see there being a race winning option on the table for the duration of that contract that he signed. Yeah, but it's for me. It's I see what you mean. For me, it's baking in the flexibility to be able to have a market form around you, to be able to have other teams try to sell you on their projects. For me, that's really important when. I think the relative value of a driver, and I mean relative, I don't mean overall, but I mean relative, relative to other drivers on the market, is higher than the value of the team relative to other teams on the market. McLaren's done a great job this season, but I I do not believe it is as high in the F1 team rankings as Lando Norris is in the F1 driver rankings. I think there's an uneven partnership there. I think Lando Norris is more elite than McLaren. So for me, the fact that he took himself off the market, whatever was going to be available, I don't like it. I don't particularly, I don't see it as making a ton of sense. I know stability is very important. I know not thinking about contract stuff is good. I know the financial compensation will have been quite substantial and significant and deserved. But just for me, it just doesn't, me just doesn't really work. And I think, I I do genuinely believe Red Bull would be having a lot of thoughts right now if Norris wasn't under contract for McLaren, if he was still you know waiting to to sign a new one. I think there could be some movement there. I think there's a question of whether as good as McLaren has been this season, a, a place like Mercedes is a better medium term bet for F1 success. Could try could try there. Could try to present yourself as an alternative there. Uh, Ferrari, let's not talk about. But <laughs> yeah, for me, just it's it's more philosophical even than exact strategies. But I also do genuinely believe there there absolutely could be a scenario where he's in the second Red Bull, and I think being in the second Red Bull is better than being in the first McLaren. 
And I think it will be that way for for quite a long time, despite McLaren's gains. It depends what your ultimate ambition is, though, because if your objective is to be able to sporadically win races, it is better to be in the second Red Bull. But if your ambition is to be the world champion, I don't think it is, not alongside Max Verstappen. Because Yeah, but so here's my reasoning there, right? Let's see that you've arrived at Red Bull and you've won a handful of races, but you realize that the team is too built around Max. And first of all, as a driver, you have to back yourself to be able to change that situation, I think. And I don't think it's entirely outside of the realm of possibility that somebody, a, a supernova could come into Red Bull and at least make it a close fight. And that Red Bull would be totally put off by that and it would be a complete disaster and the team would do something to prevent that from happening. But for me, it's just you go in there and you get yourself the silverware and then the next contract cycle rolls around. And if you've been winning races for Red Bull, you can get yourself into a McLaren project. You'll still be very highly rated and highly touted. You, your reputation won't have taken a massive knock and there will be teams that are upwardly mobile that are looking for a driver to take them to the next level. I mean, teams like, I don't know, Audi. I should say if 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 Audi did end up buying McLaren, like was rumored briefly, I think I would feel better about this Norris move. But still, I mean, for me, it's just like he should be he should be winning races now. Not all of them. But. He should be, but but I think I think the I think the circumstances that you lay out there or the sort of conditions of it, I think set set Lando up for a Fernando Alonso style career. Rather than a Lewis Hamilton style career, which is which is the blue or a Michael Schumacher style or a Max Verstappen style, because that's the th- those are the blueprints. It's you you get the team, and I think you, you you get a team and you you make sure it's it's built around you, which is obviously easier said than done. But I think the length of the contract, given where obviously people at the best teams were kind of locked into anyway, I think Lando, based on what I've heard from people who were close to him when the deal was being done but also from him himself I think viewed it as that there is there's first of all there's enough time so the flip side of that or you could go to Red Bull and then find a seat elsewhere if that doesn't work out is vice versa it's okay you can back this project now but then there's still time to do something because Either Lando gets to the end, Lando gets to the end of the McLaren deal, and his market value is still sky high, and then he commands a mega seat anyway. Or he's proven he's not actually a mega star because he's been beaten by Piastri or someone else at McLaren, and therefore he's spoiled, spoiled goods almost. So I think I think the logic was you you have a period of time in which first of all you are happy to commit to a project, and you don't see in the short to medium term a better option available at the moment because other seats are, are, are taken up and then the the logic i believe the logic behind no escape which to me is, is the weirdest part of it not the length of the deal or anything like that it is not giving himself any flexibility i understand it from mclaren's side because you don't want to build yourself around a driver that could disappear after a year or two not necessarily from lando's but i believe the logic is that for mclaren to be able to get into a position to offer him a winning car for 25 26 he has to be fully fully engaged in that project and therefore what's the point of entering that engagement if you might look for a way out after two or three years so i I think that's what it comes down to and it's different strokes for different folks isn't it like for other drivers might back themselves and just say actually sod it my career's only as long as um as other people decide it it will be, I just need to get into a... I'd, I'd rather be in a race-winning car, but maybe the number two by default than carve out my own niche somewhere else. And it's hard to say emphatically what's 
what's right or wrong because obviously to each individual the the arguments are very different well, I, i'm going to i'm going to do devil's advocate to your devil's advocate uh fernando alonso like career doesn't sound so bad to me. I mean, you change a handful of laps in Formula One history and he's a five-time Formula One champion. I know that's, I know what you meant. I know you meant late era Fernando Alonso rather than early era Fernando Alonso so much. But I I still think there is, I think for, for an F1 driver, the longer term plan before their champion for the first time should be doing whatever it takes to win that first champion as a championship as early as possible or have a shot at that first championship as early as possible, and then see how they want to play out the rest of their career. But I, I, I know what you mean, and ultimately it, it feels weirdly <laughs> mercenary and heartless and, I don't know, ultra-capitalist to sit here and go, well, how, how dare he not tr- test himself out on the open market? How dare he not you know, initiate a bidding war? How dare he be loyal to a team? Uh, who cares about loyalty? Go get yours. But, you know, this is a position I find myself arguing very often. And I do genuinely, maybe not in such strong terms, but I do genuinely believe it. If maybe even for our entertainment, it would have been better. But also, I think I, I, I still don't see it as a move that at the time maximizes chances of winning a championship, even though ultimately I suspect we arrive at 2025 and it's a wash. Because it has, it wouldn't have happened either way. Because Max Verstappen has won seven million races in a row, so who cares? The bottom line is it's certainty versus hypotheticals, isn't it? There's only one other team really that you could have gone into and consistently won races, and that's Red Bull. And that's a very, very hypothetical situation for Norris. I'd certainly agree he should have set some escape clauses in the in the contract. These don't have to be that high, but you just need to set a bit of a basement for what's acceptable, so you can get out if you need to. But it's interesting when you look at McLaren, because if you look at what McLaren has done, it's a very big box tick that they've identified a weakness and tackled it and made this big step in season. That's very positive. And that actually was identified under the previous technical regime and seen through under the new one, which is actually a tick in the box for almost both of those, if you like. There's still this problem with the peculiarities of the car. I, I still think there's some question mark about whether the team has really accepted the source of those problems. They generally point to the characteristics of the tyres but there's hints of a bit of an aero ghost in the machine there as well somewhere that some have suggested. So I want to see them get on top of that because right now they've got a car that Norris Norris says, well, the car's got a lot quicker, but it's still a bit weird and it's still got those peculiarities. So they need to iron those out. That's kind of the next mission for them because they've been trying to iron these out for quite a few years now. So they've ticked some boxes, but there's a lot more boxes to tick and the trajectory is encouraging. But not many teams under these ground effect regulations have have kind of identified something quite to that extent and solved it. And that's very, very positive. The question now is, can that transfer to other challenges or is it a one-off? That will be told by time and how that time plays out and how how McLaren plays out will probably decide whether Norris's long-term contract was a good idea or a terrible idea, I guess. And in an attempt to sort of make this podcast whole and bring it back to what we started talking about in the first place, but linked to Norris, is that the way that Piastri started his F1 career and the way, crucially, that Piastri has raised his game as McLaren, the McLaren's got better, that he's gone with the peak of the car as the car's got better, makes Norris's situation really interesting in the sort of short to medium term because not only does he now have a highly rated driver with a lot of potential alongside him, He's got a driver alongside him who's clearly capable of actually beating him now. 
And that weakens Norris's position potentially in McLaren, but also, you know, outside it. Um, it, it, it also doesn't reflect very well, even more so on Daniel Ricciardo from, from last season and beyond. But for, for Norris, it, it's it's really, really interesting. If he... He has definitely, definitely made the difference several times this year because he's more experienced and he's a fantastic driver. The 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 podiums at Silverstone and and, and Hungary Ring were were superbly superbly judged. But Piastri was 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 due a podium at Silverstone, and had he not picked up some damage, I think he'd have had a different race trajectory uh, in Hungary. Now he might not have beaten Norris. That I'm I'm not going to sit here and say that, but. I find it really disingenuous. I think I saw a quote attributed to Otmar Zafnauer recently where he said, oh, Piastri's not been that impressive because Norris has been able to finish second in that car twice, which just strikes me as just completely misrepresentative of the facts of recent races because Piastri's managed... Piastri should have had one podium and then probably finished fourth in Hungary at the very least. And then he finished second in the sprint race in Belgium. So I don't see Piastri as missing the peaks at all. And the longer that continues, and the more experience he gets, the more of a the more of a challenger he will be to Norris. And that is his goal. He said that in Hungary that he's pleased with how well he's faring against Norris so far. But his his intention isn't to fare well against Norris; it's to beat him. And for for the first time, probably since his first year in F one, alongside Signs, I think it's fair to say that Norris is up against someone who he might lose to. And looks like he could lose to him. Not to say that it's definitely going to happen or it's imminently going to happen, but it, it can happen. And it can start to happen this year with him qualifying or races or whatever. And it's it's just a really fascinating one to play out because this was so emphatically Lando's team at the start of the year. And I think it still is now. But it could start swinging towards being more Oscar's team as well if it keeps going this way, especially if there's any hint that Lando does want to go elsewhere. i got to say that. That reported Otmar quote just stopped me in my tracks, basically just completely derailed my I had to go immediately start Googling that because I, I can't believe it. So, yeah, wow. Yeah, the um, there was some motivated reasoning, I think, uh, in that particular one. So, uh, yeah, I'd be quite happy having uh, having Piastri uh, uh, in my lineup. I, I think Alpine have uh, have lost out there uh, ultimately. But yeah, this is what's so interesting about this that there is a, a live battle to be had there. I think right now, you know, Norris is still the one who's on top, and you know, we're not saying Piastri's got on top of him and he's definitely going to get on top of him. That's what makes it so interesting. It is something that is to be resolved. And Norris has really impressed me. A bit like um, you were saying with Piastri, I wasn't completely convinced with Nor- Norris in the junior ranks in that he was clearly very good, but sometimes you wonder whether people kind of brute force their way to that sort of level of success. But no, proper driver, massively, massively impressed with what he's done in Formula 1. And the fact Piastri's getting into that ballpark is very, very uh, encouraging. And I think that's going to be to McLaren's benefit because it's always better. It can cause problems, but I think you're better off when you've got two drivers pushing each other because it means you get the best out of them. You know you're getting the most out of the car. So this is going to be a fascinating storyline to watch evolve over the next 18 months and beyond. But thanks very much to Val and Scott for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there, even in the middle of the August break. Check out our other podcasts, including our MotoGP podcast that Val is very often on. Our IndyCar podcast, Bring Back V10s, The Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson. And also take a look at our YouTube channel, both for long and short form videos. 
Well, there's a long way to go still before we're back to racing at Zandvoort, but stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.